The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the chapter which we read at the beginning, namely the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 to 6, from the 2nd to the 6th verse in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. I want particularly to deal with that sixth verse. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now here in this incident, we have focused what is in many ways the great picture which is presented to us by the four Gospels. And uh, the picture presented by the Gospels is one uh, of great tragedy. It is uh, the tragedy, of course, of the way in which the world reacted to the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What we have in these Gospels is pictures of these different reactions of people, different on the surface, but speaking generally, apart from the few who believed on him, this uh, rejection of the Son of God, to use the language of our text, the way in which so many were offended in him, offended by him, and took offense at him. It's a very striking word here that our Lord uses, blessed is he, he says, whosoever shall not be offended in me. It means to be scandalized. And that means, of course, to be astonished in a bad sense. Scandalized. Regarded as something offensive. Blessed, he says, is he, whosoever, shall not be scandalized by me and by what he sees in me. Now that is, I say, the great thing, unfortunately, which is revealed to us in the pages of the gospel. So much of our Lord's time, precious time, was taken up in argument and disputation. These people coming and plotting to trap him, trying to put their catch clever questions in order to trip him up and to entangle him, taking up stones and throwing at him and finally crying out away with him and plotting and encompassing his death. That's the thing which you find in the pages of the four Gospels. They were offended in him. They took umbrage at him constantly. Now, here, in this incident, we have all that presented to us. And presented to us in a rather surprising manner. Because we have it, in a sense, in the case of no lesser person than John the Baptist. And, of course, this is what uh, helps us to understand this thing which is in human nature and which tends to make it be offended by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John, of course, was an outstanding man in every way. He was the last of the great prophets. He is the immediate forerunner. He is the one who goes, as it were, before the very face of the Lord. And our Lord pays him a very great tribute. He says, among those that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. And you recall how John had made some very striking statements about our Lord. When people were about to worship him, he said, don't worship me, I'm not the Christ. He said, I am unworthy to undo even the latchet of his shoes. I indeed baptize with water, he shall baptize with the Holy Ghost and with power. And standing one day with two of his followers, he pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, 
Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. There he is. He must increase, I must decrease. Well, all this was wonderful, wasn't it? And yet here, you see, we find John the Baptist in trouble about the Lord Jesus Christ. When he'd heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he sent this message. Art thou he that should come? Are you, after all, the Messiah that we've been expecting and waiting for? Or did I make a mistake? Was I wrong in what I said? Are you really the Messiah? Or should we start looking for somebody else? Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? For some reason or another, you see, John, even John the Baptist in prison, was in trouble about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can do nothing more profitable than consider together some of the reasons that are revealed here as to why even this great man was at this particular moment troubled. Yes, in a sense, offended, scandalized. He was stumbling. He was stumbling, obviously. He'd lost his balance. He was stumbling. Art thou he? Or do we look for another? Now, as you read your Gospels, you find that there were many things about our Lord which caused people to stumble at him and to be scandalized by him. There were many who were scandalized by his very person. I mean by that, that the fact that he'd been born in such lowly circumstances, born in such utter poverty, born in a stable, and that he was a man who had been brought up in Nazareth, up in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. And that he was only a carpenter, man working with his hands, an ordinary workman. There were many who were scandalized by that. This fellow, they said, had no training at all, inferior to the Pharisees. Who is this fellow? You see, his very person was a cause of offense and of scandal to large numbers of people at that time. But it wasn't the only cause of trouble. There were many who were scandalized by him because of what he didn't do. I'm going to deal with that, because I suggest that John goes mainly into that category. There were large numbers who were scandalized, I say, by what he didn't do. They thought he was going to do certain things. He didn't do them. And they were offended by him. There were others who were equally scandalized by what he did do. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. Our Lord himself puts it here so perfectly. He said, whereunto shall I liken this generation? He says, it is likened to children sitting in the market and calling unto their fellows and saying, we have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. He says, it doesn't seem to matter what we do, it's always wrong. You say you want some jollification. Well, all right, in a sense, we've given it you. But you don't like that. Then we are serious, and you don't like that. John came, neither eating nor drinking, and, well, you said, he is a devil. He's devil-possessed. He's a maniac. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The exact opposite, as it were. And you say, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Whatever we do is wrong. You don't know what you want. You're offended and scandalized by everything. By what I don't do, and then by what I do. Then you remember there were large numbers who were scandalized by his teaching. The Pharisees and scribes were infuriated by it. And the more he taught, the more they were offended, and the more they were scandalized at his searching preaching concerning the law, at the way he examined the very depth of their hearts and exposed the iniquity and the foulness. They hated him. There were those who were offended by his gentleness. There were those who were offended by his sternness. On all sides, he seemed to be causing offense. But, of course, finally there was nothing that proved to be such a cause of offense 
as his death upon the cross. Even the disciples were offended by that. Our Lord prophesied it. He said, you know, this night shall have not passed until you all shall be offended in me. And they were. They didn't understand that. They said, but ah, he's apparently weak and helpless. We've seen him calming the storm on the sea, stopping the raging of the gale. We've seen him even raising the dead. And here he is arrested in utter weakness, crucified, buried. They were offended in him. His death was a terrible offense to them. They couldn't get it. They couldn't understand it. Well, now there I mention to you some of the things which obviously on the very surface of the New Testament statement in the four Gospels caused our Lord to be a grounds of offense and of scandal to large numbers of people. Well, now, my friends, I'm calling your attention to it tonight. Not because I want to make an academic study with you of what we read in the New Testament. God knows the times in which we are living are too desperate even to do that. I'm simply calling attention to all this because the world is still the same. He is still a scandal to many people. There are still many people in trouble about him. There are many in this congregation Yes, you're in trouble about him, aren't you? You're not a Christian. You've been reading about him. You're talking and arguing about him. But you don't believe in him as your Savior and as your Lord and as your God. You're not enjoying this glorious salvation. Ah, you're in trouble. I don't understand this, you say. You're in trouble. You're vexed. You're annoyed. You don't understand this. And you don't like that. You're exactly like these people depicted here in the pages of the New Testament. And that's why I'm calling your attention to this, my dear friend. I interpret the fact that you are in this service as meaning that you've done exactly what John the Baptist did. And I thank God for that. You know, that's the only thing to do when you're in trouble about Jesus Christ. Go to him. Go to him. Do what John the Baptist did. Poor John, he couldn't go to him in person because he was lying in a prison in a dungeon. He did the next best thing. He had two of his followers with him. He said, look here, go to him. Take this message from me. I want to put a question to him. Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? You know you've done the right thing by coming here. You've come to listen to what Christ himself has got to say through my unworthy lips. I'm simply here as a mouthpiece to tell you what he himself said. And to expound it to you. You've done the right thing. The tragedy is that so many don't do that. You see, they're talking about him somewhere else, and they don't know what they're talking about. Well, how do you say that, says someone? That's sheer abuse. It isn't, you know. You've only got to listen to them to know that they don't know their scriptures. They talk about what they think. They don't listen to what he says. Why not come to him and put the question? I say you've done it. God bless you for doing it. That is always the first step to a final and a true and a complete understanding. Now then, what is the cause of the trouble? Why doesn't everybody believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why should he be a sort of arguing point to the world tonight instead of being the Savior who gives these glorious blessings? Well, he seems himself to suggest the answer, doesn't he, in this very beatitude that he utters here in this sixth verse. It's a very strange beatitude, this. You notice there's a negative in it. He says, blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, he could have said, couldn't he, blessed is he who believeth in me. But he didn't put it like that. Most of his beatitudes are always positives. The special thing about this beatitude is that it's a negative. What is an extraordinary way of putting it? Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. What is he suggesting? Well, the implicit suggestion, I think you'll all agree, is this. That the natural thing for the natural man to do is to be offended in him. So the man who is a Christian is an exception. And he's an exception by not doing the natural thing. He's not reacting to Christ as everybody does by nature. 
Everybody by nature reacts against Christ, rejects him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was rejected by his own people. That's the natural thing to do. So he puts it like that, you see. The natural man instinctively is offended by me. Oh, blessed is the man who isn't offended in that way. And there, you see, we are given the key to the whole thing. The cause of the trouble is this condition of the natural men. What is that? Well, that is sin. That is to be in a sinful condition. The Apostle Paul makes this same self-same point by putting it like this. Whom even the princes of this world did not know, for had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They looked at him, and they crucified him. The princes, the religious leaders, the great moralists, the philosophers, the Roman Empire, they all joined together. Pilate and Herod came together. Everybody kept, they all were against him. They crucified him. Why? They didn't know him. And they didn't know him because they couldn't see, blinded by sin. That's the terrible thing about sin. It blinds us to beauty. There are people, one understands, who see no beauty at all in Beethoven. They rejoice in this other which is called and passes as music. This depraved cacophony. Well, it's that kind of thing, you see. There is a blindness that afflicts the human race, and it's the blindness caused by sin. And what does it do? Well, here are some of the things that it does to us. Now, let's take it even in the case of John the Baptist, who sends his messengers from the prison, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another poor John was stumbling there in the prison? Why? Well, the first answer which we give is this. People are stumbled by the Lord Jesus Christ as the result of sin because it makes them expect the wrong things from him. Art thou ye that should come, or do we look for another? Why did John ask the question? John who'd said these great things about him. Well, there's no trouble about answering this at all. John, no doubt, was partly in this condition because he'd been in prison for six months. And to be in prison then was a terrible thing. It was to be in a dungeon with no sanitation, no air. The conditions were indescribable and he'd been there for six months. And he'd become a sick and an ill man and no doubt it had had an effect upon his mind and his outlook and everything else. And we know we've got evidence to prove that some of his own disciples were very bad friends to him. They were a bit jealous of the Lord Jesus Christ because he'd attracted a greater crowd than he, John, had. You'll read that in the third chapter of John's Gospel. And no doubt they were whispering things into his ears all along. And here is poor John sending his question his, by his messengers. What was the trouble? Well, it was this. John, of course, as a Jew had fallen victim to the common Jewish error with regard to the Messiah. They were all expecting the Messiah. John, above all. The prophets had written, they'd found it in their Psalms, it was everywhere. Moses had said, God's going to raise up a man like unto me. That's the one to listen to. The prophet that is to come. They were all waiting and looking. This coming one. Well, that's all right, but then you see, there suddenly they'd gone wrong. They'd got their own idea about this coming one. And their idea was this. It's very easy to understand it when you're a subject-conquered race, as they were at this particular time, vassals of the Roman Empire. What was more natural than that they should think of their Messiah and Deliverer in political terms? And they did. They said when he comes, he's going to be the greatest king the world has ever seen. He's going to be filled with power and with glory. And he will be such a wonderful man that though he comes to us in our conquered, abject condition, he will very quickly organize an army and gather it together and with his prowess 
and his ability, though we shall be small in number, will rout the Roman, uh, Roman army. He will, will get rid of this oppression. He'll set himself up as king in Jerusalem, and there he will reign, and he'll conquer the whole world, and we shall be above everybody. David will be restored as the universal conqueror. The kingdom will never have been so glorious as when he comes. That was the Jewish idea of the Messiah. And there is no doubt that it was John's idea of the Messiah partly. Because, you know, there's a very significant statement here in this second verse. We are told that when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, You see, a report had come to him. What was the report? Well, the report was that he was up in Galilee, preaching to great crowds of very common people. Not up in Jerusalem, not addressing the court, not making political speeches, not gathering his army, not working his way to becoming king. No, he was up in Galilee preaching to these ordinary people, and he was working great miracles. John had heard all that. Now, this is the significant thing we've got to grasp. This is the whole argument. It was when he heard all that that John sent his messengers, saying, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? In other words, what John was saying was this. I'm beginning to wonder whether you are the coming one after all. For if you are the coming one, what are you doing up there in Galilee? Why don't you go to Jerusalem? What, you're spending your time in preaching to these ignorant people? Why don't you set up an army and conquer? Why don't you behave as Messiah? Is this all you're doing? Is this all you've come for? Are you the Messiah? Is it possible? When he'd heard of the works, he sent his messengers. He said, you know, this isn't what the Messiah should be doing. Is this the Messiah? You see how it works? He was expecting certain things, and our Lord wasn't doing them. Then, of course, I've no doubt there was another thing, and a very personal one, which came in. It comes in so often, poor John. Here he was, he'd been preaching before Christ. He had baptized him in the Jordan, he had paid him these great tributes, he told his own followers to go after him. He had done everything a man could to prepare the way for him. And yet here is one who seems to be the Messiah. He allows a man like this to be held in prison for six months, doesn't seem to raise a finger. Is it possible? Is it possible that this is the Messiah? Would the Messiah allow John of all men to be languishing in prison and to be suffering like this? If he's the Messiah, why doesn't he exert his power? Why doesn't he set John free? Surely that's the obvious thing for the Messiah to do. But he wasn't doing it. John was in prison. Jesus was up in Galilee preaching to a crowd of ordinary and poor people. John had been brooding about all this. He said, you know, did I speak precipitately? Was I carried away by a wave of emotion when I said, Behold the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah? Is it? I don't understand, says John. He was in real trouble and perplexity. Jesus of Nazareth seemed to be doing everything that he didn't expect him to do and not doing everything that he thought he would do. And there he is in his trouble and his perplexity and he says, well, there's only one thing to do. Let's send and ask him. So he sent his messenger. Now, my dear friends, there are many people tonight who are not Christian for precisely the same reason. They're offended by the Lord Jesus Christ for exactly these reasons that stumbled poor John the Baptist. Oh, I don't want to keep you with these. You're familiar with them. You can hear them whenever you like in all discussions about Christianity and as people talk. Isn't this one of the commonest of all? The man says, the average man says, you know, he says, how can I believe in Christianity? It's been going now for 2,000 years and yet look at the state of the world. If this is the Son of God, as you say, and if the gospel is what you claim for it, why is the world as it is? Why hasn't he cleared up and cleaned up the world? Why hasn't he put it right? Why hasn't he put an end to war? Why does he allow men to make these armaments? Why doesn't he stop all this political still, you see, and social? 
And others are waiting for some great philosophical declaration. But, you know, I think that one of the commonest of all the objections is almost the exact uh, of this one which we have here in the mouth of John the Baptist. I hear it very frequently. If you'll permit me to put it personally, I think this is probably the commonest criticism that is passed upon my preaching. Ah, they say, that man, he's always talking about personal salvation. He doesn't seem to know what's happening in the world. Why doesn't he deal with these great questions? Why doesn't he preach on this disarmament conference? Why doesn't he speak about war? Why doesn't he speak about South Africa? Always talking about this personal salvation. That utter selfish, narrow, small, little attitude. My little soul, they say. And the great world and its great problems, he's got nothing to say about them. And his Christ, what does he do about them? Isn't that it? You see, it's an exact reproduction of poor John the Baptist. Art thou he that should come? What, you're spending your time up there in Galilee for with that ignorant mob that's listening to you? I hear about these works of yours, but man, isn't there something bigger for you to do? Go down to Jerusalem. Deal with the political situation. Put Israel on top above all the nations. Do the big thing. What are you fiddling with these little things for? That's what he was saying. And his Followers are still saying it today, you see. But of course, we are full of contradictions. John, I say, was not only misled by that false political and social conception of the Messiah, he was equally in trouble, as I say, about the personal issue. And there are many who know the same. They say, I was ill. I heard about this Christ and his working miracles. If ever a man prayed, I prayed, but I'm still no better. I've tried your Christ, says many a man. A little child was once desperately ill and meant more than the world to me. And I tried everything. The doctors had done everything. And then I heard about your God and your Christ. I prayed to him to spare my child. He didn't listen to me. The child died. I'm not interested in your Christianity. I've been told that kind of thing dozens and dozens of times. People are offended in him, you see, because they expect the wrong things from him. They want healing or magical guidance or something. They say they put him to the test and he doesn't do it. They don't. He doesn't seem to be doing what they expect him to do. That's the first great reason still. But let me hurry on to say a word about the second matter, which is this. It's a very remarkable thing about John the Baptist that his essential failure at this point was due to the fact that he hadn't really understood the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah. Now this is almost incredible, isn't it? And yet, you see, it's the very point our Lord himself makes in the reply that he sends to John. Go, he says, and tell John again. Those things which you do hear and see. He's heard them. Go and tell him again. John has sent me a message saying, I have heard of the works that you're doing. Are you the Christ or not? And this is the answer. Go and tell him again what I'm doing. It seems madness, doesn't it? All he says is, go and tell John again the very things he's already heard. Why? Well, perhaps repetition will help him. The art of teaching is repetition, isn't it? It isn't enough with most of us to say a thing once, you know. It's got to be said many, many, many times before we get it. What was our Lord doing? Well, this is what he was doing. He said, look here, go back and tell John the things that you do see and hear. Why, why, what's the point? Well, it's this. What are these things? Well... These very things that I'm doing are the very things that the Old Testament prophets prophesied that I would do. What did they prophesy? Well, go and read Isaiah 35. Go and read Isaiah 55. What does the prophet say about the day of Messiah? He says, when he comes, the blind will have sight. The lame man will leap like a heart. And so on. Go and tell John again. Read your Old Testament prophets, he said, and this is what you'll find. 
They don't say that the Messiah, when he comes, will be some extraordinary, striking personage. Tall, good-looking, handsome, suggesting a king and a great emperor, and people will quail and fall as they stand before him. What they say is this, that he'll be like a root out of dry ground. Apparently hopeless. Nothing. Dry ground, wilderness. Yes, you see, born in a stable, not in a palace. As he says, they that are born in king's palaces wear soft clothing. The Messiah didn't come like that. Root out of dry ground. That's what they prophesied. And then with regard to his appearance, they say he hath no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. His visage was marred more than any man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, what he's sending back to John is this message. John, where did you ever get that other idea of the Messiah from? Where did it come from? It certainly didn't come from your Old Testament scriptures. It didn't come from the prophets of whom you are the last. John, why haven't you read your prophets, men? Listen, this is what I'm doing. That's what they said. Yes, they'd prophesied that he would work miracles. They prophesied that he'd have a message for the poor and the tender. The smoking flax, he will not quench the bruised reed, he will not break. Those are the pictures given of him and his utter humility, his poverty. Ah, they don't say that he'll be seated on a great throne in Jerusalem. But one of them did say that he'd ride into Jerusalem, not in a great chariot, but uh, riding, sitting, seated on the foal of an ass. That's what they prophesied. Go read your prophets, John. Go back, men, to your Old Testament scriptures. And then you'll find that they prophesied that he would suffer, that he'd be led as a lamb to the slaughter, that he would be killed and put to death. Poor John the Baptist, with the scriptures open before him, having been trained in them, he doesn't know them, he hasn't read them properly, he's got his own picture of the Messiah instead of this. Go back, tell him again. I wonder whether he'll see it now. Go back and say to him, John, this is what I'm doing, men. Listen to them. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf are made to hear, the very dead are raised, and unto the poor is the gospel preached. Have you ever heard anything like that before? Where have you heard it? Ah, it's in the scriptures. He is the Messiah, after all. John, go and tell him again. Oh, that was the trouble not only with John, but with the Jews as a whole. You see, they've got their Old Testament scriptures and they were reading them, but sin is such a terrible thing that it, it makes us blind at certain points. When you're reading your Bible, if you see a thing that you agree with, ah, you say, here it is, this is marvelous. Then there's an X bit and you don't like that, you don't see it, it isn't there. This is what the Bible says, that God is love and God isn't wrath. Oh no, that's impossible. But the Bible says he is. Ah, but you say, ah, my idea of God is a God of love. Well, yes, but that's not the scripture. You see, that's what you say. That's what poor John had been doing. It was his picture, not the scriptural picture. And all our Lord does is to send him back to the Old Testament scriptures and their picture. And you know, my dear friend, the trouble is still the same. I'll tell you why men and women are in trouble about Jesus Christ tonight. It is because they've painted their own picture of him instead of going to the Bible and looking at him. He's here. He's presented. Ah, oh, but you say, I read my Bible. Yes, I know you do, but like John the Baptist and the Jews, what you've been doing is to pick out what you like and rejecting what you don't like, and you're in trouble about Christ. Yes, and I'll tell you more. You will continue to be in trouble about him. If you come to this book as an authority and judge it by what you think and by what you say and by what you expect, he will trouble you, he will scandalize you, he will offend you. Ah, you'll say, this is what I like. His sermon on the mount, turning the other cheek, and so on and so forth. 
Yes, but he also taught the wrath of God. He also taught punishment. He also taught hell. You say, I don't believe that. I can't accept that. Very well. You see, and while you say that, you're hopeless. You're scandalized by him. You've got to take him as he is, or you'll never know him. He'll trip you. He'll trap you. You either come as you are as a little child and listen to him and receive him, or you come as the authority and you'll be stumbled and scandalized and offended. If you pick and choose from these scriptures, you'll never find peace. You'll never find salvation. It's a gospel for paupers. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But if you come as an authority, you'll never get rest. Never. If it's tripped and scandalized even a man like John the Baptist, how much more so any one of us, he was in trouble because he hadn't taken the scriptures as they are and submitted himself to them. I hurry on to say this, he hadn't realized his own greatest need. John, poor John, was thinking in terms of Israel, the nation, of course. He hadn't realized truly the need of his own soul. Oh, of course he came to. But he hadn't at this point. He was in trouble about it. And that is still the trouble with men. Men haven't seen their own personal need and position. Why don't you talk about the world situation? And you know the moment a man says that to me. He's telling me this about himself. He doesn't realize the truth about himself as a soul. And what's facing him. He doesn't realize that he'll soon be moving out of this world to an unknown eternity. It is his ignorance about his own lost estate that causes him to stumble at the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. But let me put this finally in a positive sense by putting it like this. John the Baptist did not realize the significance and the glory and the wonder of what was happening. When John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? This is what he said. I hear that you are giving sight to the blind, and making the lame walk, and cleansing lepers, making the deaf to hear and even raising the dead, and that you're preaching to a number of poor, illiterate, uneducated people. Is that all you're going to do? Is that all you're capable of doing? What about the nation of Israel? What about the world problem and the world situation? Is this all you're doing? And our Lord sent back the answer, go and tell John again. Ah, it means what I've already said, but it means this also. John, do you realize the meaning and the significance of what I am doing? You ask, is that all? Man, don't you realize what it is? Are you really dismissing what I'm doing? Can't you see its significance, its meaning, its glory? And I want to say the same to anybody tonight who is tempted to say to me, I'm sick and tired of this personal salvation of yours. My soul, it's too selfish. It's small, it's narrow, it's contemptible. I'm interested in the world problem, the world situation. I'm tired of your personal salvation, your personal conversion, your talk about the blood of Christ endlessly. I want his teaching, I want his guidance, I want something that will shake the world and retrieve the situation. And what does one say to such people? Well, it is just this. 
Can't you see, said our Lord to John the Baptist, that the works which I'm doing, which you are tending to despise, are proving beyond a doubt that I am the Messiah? When did you hear before of a man who can do these miracles that I'm doing? John, he said, forget your theories for a moment, face the facts. You've heard of my works, your two disciples have seen further samples. Who do you think is adequate to explain the things that I am doing? Is there anyone less than the Messiah who can do this? Has anyone else ever done such deeds? John, forget for a moment what you think I ought to do. Look what I am doing. Behold the evidence. Don't you see that I am the Son of God and the Messiah? My works are proving it. And then he directs his attention to the very glory of the works. Is healing the sick something that can be dismissed lightly? Is relieving suffering something that can be derided and treated with sarcasm and derision? Is restoring power something that can be treated with contempt? And what of this preaching of the gospel to the poor? Is that nothing? Ah, says John the Baptist, he's up there in Galilee preaching to a handful of poor people. Ah, that's not the work of the Messiah. Why doesn't he go to Jerusalem? Can't you see, John, said our Lord, that this is the greatest hope that's ever come to this world? Kings have got nothing to give to the poor. The Greek philosophers have got nothing to give to the poor. They don't understand their terminology and their language. They're very wonderful and they bandy their terms. But the poor, they have nothing. They're left. I am preaching the gospel to the poor. I've got something to give to men and women who are the slaves of sin and of Satan. John, it's a great thing I agree to deliver a nation from the tyranny of another nation. I am not denying that these great political matters have their importance. But you know, John said, our Lord, I'll tell you something more important. And that is the state of the souls of men and women. For the world and its kings and its emperors and its nations is all passing away. Whether there be war or no war, men and women have got to die. And I, John, am dealing with souls which are going on into eternity and which will never die if they believe in me. You ask, is that all I'm doing? Is there anything greater? Then that a man should be reconciled to God delivered from the world and the flesh and the devil, be made clean and pure where he was ugly and vile and foul. That's what I'm doing. That is the message of the gospel. And it is exactly the same when you come to his death. I'm sick and tired of this blood and thunder theology, said a man to me once. You're always on this blood of Christ. This death, and they dismiss it. They want me to talk about politics, and they're tired about this death and this blood and broken body. Why, what's the matter with them? They've never seen its glory. They're scandalized by his death, and for one reason only. They have never seen that it is the most glorious thing that has ever happened in this world. He didn't die because he was weak. He died because he came to die. He could have been carried to heaven by a legion of angels. He could have been protected by the heavenly hosts. He didn't. He came to die. It is his mission. 
He didn't come to reform the world. He has come to save men and women out of the world. And he came to die in order to do so. The scandal is the most glorious thing of all. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride, no longer a scandal. There he does the most glorious thing of all. The creator of the universe is dying for me. Very well, let me leave you with some questions. Are you scandalized by the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do you like him and take him as he is? It's one or the other. You either are scandalized by him or you like everything in him. Everything. Do you look at him and see in him clearly the Son of God? With glory and power in his miracles. And do you rejoice in this? But do you look at him as he is a babe lying helpless in the manger in Bethlehem and rejoice, if anything, even more in that? Do you rejoice in both sides of the paradox, the greatness and the weakness, the might and the lowliness, the God and the man? Do you rejoice in both, if not you are scandalized by either the God or the man? Do you like his teaching? His teaching about men in sin. The teaching that convicts us and makes us feel vile. Do you rejoice in it? Or do you offend, are you offended by it? Do you like him when he says that you can do nothing to save yourself? That he has come because you can't and because he can do you like him when he preaches the judgment and the wrath and the righteousness of God? Do you glory in that and you say he's right? When you read his words and you feel that you're a worm and less, do you object or do you say absolutely true? That's me. And when you look at him taken and crucified in weakness, Ah, do you say he was an imposter after all? Why does he allow that? Why this? Or do you say, oh, there he is, dying for me, taking my sins upon him. I see it all. God has made him to be sin for me. He's borne my sins in his own body on the cross. Do you rejoice in his death? Do you likewise rejoice in his resurrection? And marvel and wonder at it. Or are you stumbled by it in this scientific age which says that these things can't happen? Do you look at him and see him rising and say, of course, he's God. The bends of death can't hold him. He's bust them asunder. I expected it. I rejoice in it. And do you rejoice in his way of salvation? Which is this. Not that you and I go out of this service deciding to be better, to stop sinning, to do good and read the Bible and pray, and thus make ourselves Christians. No, no. But that we receive it as the free gift of God, by faith, now, without a second's delay, that we come as paupers, helpless, lost, Poor, vile, just as we are, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. O Lamb of God, I come. Are you offended by this salvation which comes as a free gift? And tells you that whoever you are, and whatever your upbringing and background, that you're hopeless, that you're vile, that you're lost, that you're under the wrath of God, does that annoy you? 
Oh, do you say, thank God it is like that. For I see that my righteousness is but as filthy rags, and that all I've bursted of is dung and loss and refuse. He's right. I've relied on my goodness, but it's vileness. He's right. I'm wrong. I thank God that it is as it is. Do you come as a pauper gladly and happily and rejoicingly? Saying thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Thank God that it is after all true when he said I came not to save the righteous but to call sinners to repentance. That they that are whole have no need of a physician. That they that are sick. Do you know if you're offended in him at any point it's because you don't realize your sickness. You see, the patient who is not very ill is interested in the appearance of his physician and the appearance and color of his medicine or the shape and size of his pills. But if you're desperate, if you're dying, what's it matter what your physician looks like? What's it matter the color of the bottle? What's the matter in the name on the tablet? If it's got power, let's have it. Beggars can't be choosers. And they who choose and think they're in a position to choose, and who still are scandalized by Christ at some point or another, are in that position because they've not realized their beggary, their poverty, their damnation, their being under the wrath of God. My friend, look at him again. This is the Son of God. Look what he did. Look at his miracles, look at his teaching, look at his learning, though he was a carpenter. Look at his confounding all the authorities. Look at him. Look at him dying in apparent weakness. Can't you see? There's only one explanation of it all. It's the explanation given here. Old Testament prophecy, New Testament fulfillment. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The Son of God, the Savior of men. God and men, heaven and hell met. Righteousness and peace have met together and have kissed each other. He'll baffle you until you take him as he is. God, man. Savior of the soul. Lord of glory. Are you in trouble about him? Are you scandalized? Are you shaking? Well, go to him, I say. And ask him the question. He'll give you the answer. If you honestly want to know him and to be sure, ask him. He'll give you the spirit who will enlighten you and you'll see him in his glory and in his fullness. And you'll fall at his feet and say, what a fool I've been. Thank God he is as he is and what he is. And that his salvation is not what I thought it ought to be. But that it is what he knew all along that I needed to save me in time and for all eternity. Amen.